There's a lot of crazy stuff you can read about birth order. Uh, you know, depending on whether you were firstborn or the middle child or the last child, psychologists really get into this. Uh, I think it's all crazy stuff that doesn't really flesh out. But I came across this tidbit about last-born children. So if you're the last-born child, you can tell me afterwards if this is true of you or not. It says, the last-born of the family are social and outgoing. They are the most financially irresponsible of all birth order. They just want to have a good time. Knowing that these kids love the limelight, it's no surprise to discover that Billy Crystal, Goldie Hawn, Drew Carey, Jim Carey, and Steve Martin are all last born. So uh, I don't know if that puts you in good company or not, but uh, I don't know that that's true. In fact, I know it's not. Uh, But people get really into that kind of stuff. I hope you're not one of them because now I've just insulted you. But uh, anyway, if you're in therapy right now and they're making a big deal about your birth order, see me afterwards. If you were a first century Jew in Rome, birth order was important because it determined birthright, not for some psychological mumbo-jumbo, but for really legal reasons. The birthright of the firstborn Jewish son consisted, first of all, in a double portion of any inheritance. The firstborn also became the new head of the family, thus having considerable authority and influence over the other members of the family. Now, let's say you were a first century Jew who had been born again. And let's say you were a gracious individual and you understood that Gentiles could be saved without conforming to Jewish rites and rituals. Still, you would look out at what was happening spiritually and you'd be confused. Israel was God's firstborn, but they no longer had the birthright. God seemed to have set aside Israel as his firstborn nation in favor of the Gentiles. And it was very disheartening from an ethnic point of view, from a Jewish point of view. And so even if you weren't a crazy Judaizer, you you understood that God was reaching the Gentiles, your perspective was that God was going to bless the world through Israel, not instead of Israel. And from a scriptural point of view, you'd have a hard time knowing the scriptures. I mean, these guys knew the Bible. Even ignorant fishermen like Peter could quote long sections of Scripture. It was from their homeschooling. And uh, get it? Homeschooling? It's a little, I guess, well, maybe it wasn't funny, but you could humor me. Anyway, so, uh, you know, so they understood that, that God had made these promises to Israel, and it was confusing. Now, it's true the leaders of the nation of Israel had officially rejected Jesus. They had crucified him. But God had made certain unconditional promises to Israel through the patriarchs had God's word to Israel failed. Well, we pick up our text in verse 6. It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Uh, The phrase taken no effect means failed. The word of God had not failed. Paul, the apostle, the writer of this book, is going to show from the Old Testament patriarchs that they are not all Israel who are of Israel. God never intended natural birth alone to determine a person's salvation. Natural birth determined privilege, but not salvation. A natural-born Jew was privileged to have the things listed in verses 4 and 5. You can rescan them as we're talking here, but they were 
privilege to have the law and the covenants, the word of God, the tabernacle service, all of that, to show them what it meant to know God. But these alone were insufficient to save him. A supernatural birth was also required. And that's why Jesus told Nicodemus that he must be born again. Now, natural birth and supernatural birth are going to be illustrated to the Jews in the offspring of the patriarch Abraham. And remember what Paul is doing. He's talking to Jews especially about what God is doing with the nation of Israel and where in Scripture he has a precedent for how he's acting. Uh, because even God has to obey Scripture. You understand? He, he can't just say one thing and do another thing. And the Jew is going to hold God to the Scripture and basically say, where is the precedent for God setting us aside as his firstborn and giving the birthright to someone else? And so Paul says in verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, this is appropriate because we're studying this on Sunday morning, so you've got the background there. You know that Abraham had two sons. Ishmael was born when Abraham went into Sarah's maid, Hagar, and slept with her trying to produce an heir. Isaac was born when Sarah was past childbearing age. Her womb was dead, and she was completely barren. Both sons were naturally born to Abraham, but only one was also understood to be supernaturally born. Paul applied this truth in verses 8 and 9. He said in verse 8, <clears throat> Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of the promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Paul was comparing Christ-rejecting Jews to Ishmael. That's rough. If you know anything about the pride of a Jew and the story of Ishmael and, and, uh, and all, you know that this is not pleasant to be told that you were like Ishmael. But it was accurate. They were only born of the flesh. They were only born naturally. They lacked the supernatural element of birth that was necessary for them to be saved. Jews and Gentiles who receive Jesus Christ are like Isaac. They're supernaturally born and saved. It's as if he was saying to these first century Jews, at this time the Lord has come and he will have sons, all those who are supernaturally born again, Jew and Gentile alike. And so just natural birth, just being born of Abraham, as it were, didn't get you saved. It didn't help Ishmael become saved. God ignored that in a sense because it was the supernatural birth that was required, and that's illustrated in Isaac. Even though Israel was set apart from the beginning, God taught the Jews that a second supernatural birth was needed for them to be saved. In fact, instead of asking this question, instead of wondering what God was doing, like Paul, they could have understood and said, you know what? God's treating us the way he treated Ishmael and Isaac. He set us aside like Ishmael because we, our nation, has not entered into the supernatural aspect of this transaction. And so that's what's going on there. And then Paul next looked at the patriarch Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, and their twin boys, Esau and Jacob. He goes from discussing birth to discussing birthright, which was also very important to the Jew. Verse 10, 
Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now Esau was Isaac and Rebekah's firstborn son. They were twin boys, but he came out first. And by privilege should have inherited the birthright. Instead, you know the story, Jacob received the birthright. The second-born son ended up with the privileges that belonged to the first-born son. Now, before you get lost in the secondary theological ramifications of these verses, we'll talk about that. Don't overlook Paul's primary argument. Esau and Jacob and their birthright are used here to illustrate his point. Esau had the privileges of birth, but he later despised them. Jacob did not have the privileges of being firstborn, but he later desired them. Esau represents the nation of Israel, and Jacob represents the Gentiles in this illustration. The nation of Israel had the privileges by birth, but later despised them when they rejected Jesus Christ. The Gentiles never had the privileges of birth that the Jews had, but later desired them, and they were being saved by the preaching of the gospel. And so now, Paul is saying the Jews had become like Esau. First you're like Ishmael, now you're like Esau. There aren't two guys you want to be like any worse than this, other than maybe Lot. I mean, these guys, as far as guys in the, you know, to tell a Jew, hey, I've got it, here's what's happening. You're like Ishmael and Esau, and yet an insightful Jew, a Jew that understood his word and read the Old Testament scripture, would understand where Paul was coming from. God was giving his attention to those second born, to the Gentiles who were being born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's really a very neat scriptural argument. Paul is going to go on to say that God is not through with Israel as a nation, but he has to deal with the situation. What is God doing then and how can he do it if he's made these promises and if birth and birthright are so important to God? What is he doing? And, and he's able to show from the Old Testament, birth is important, but it's the supernatural birth that's important. And birthright is important, but it's given to those who desire the birthright and who receive the Lord. <clears throat> now, that's the context of these verses. That's why Paul wrote them. These whole uh, three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, they're all about God's dealings with national Israel, with the Jewish people in light of current events. He did not write these chapters to develop or to defend a theology about individual salvation that would teach God predestines anyone to heaven while simultaneously predestinating, uh, predestining others to hell. What are we therefore to make of verses 11 and 13, which kind of bother us? Verse 11 reads, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Um, we say their earthly election is in view, not their eternal election. In other words, God had already elected or chosen the earthly paths of these two boys in Rebecca's womb. Dr. Harry Ironside, he wrote this, 
says, what a tremendous amount of needless controversy has raged about these verses, yet how plain and simple they are viewed in the light of God's dealings with the nation of Israel as a nation. There is no question here of predestination to heaven or reprobation to hell. We are not told here or anywhere else that before children are born, it is God's purpose to send one to heaven and another to hell. The passage has entirely to do with privilege here on the earth. It was the purpose of God that Jacob should be the father of the nation of Israel and that through him our Lord Jesus Christ should come into the world. He had also predetermined that Esau should be a man of the wilderness, the father of a nation of nomads, as the Edomites have ever been. I believe that this is the most accurate way of understanding this verse. It keeps it in the context of what Paul is actually talking about. He's talking about God's dealings with the nation of Israel and how it is that he has temporarily set them aside to deal with the Gentiles. Paul has already developed his theology of salvation in the earlier chapters uh, that we read. And so he's not teaching anything about individual election to salvation. Uh, he is talking about the earthly privileges and paths of these two individuals. So then you raise your hand and you say, but doesn't verse 13 clearly say, Jacob I have what? Loved, but Esau I have hated. Well, it does say that. But you need to go back to where and why it says that. If you're not careful, you think that it's a quote from Genesis and that it's talking about these two boys. It's not a quote from Genesis. It's a quote from Malachi. It's not from the first book of the Bible. It's from the last book of the, Bi of the Old Testament, rather. It's from Malachi. It was not said before the children were born. And it was not said of Esau as a person it was said of his descendants, the Edomites, as a nation. Hundreds of years after Jacob and Esau had died, the Israelites and Edomites became bitter enemies. The Edomites often aided Israel's enemies in attacks on Israel, one way or the other. God's statement in Malachi refers to the Edomites as a nation. It's, he's not talking about Esau before he was born or Esau in the womb or Esau as a person it's talking about the Edomites as a nation because this quote is from Malachi and that's what the context is. Still, we need to deal biblically with this word hated. Dr. Herbert Wolf has this insightful commentary. He says this, The meaning of God's hatred has perplexed and confused many, but a solution is readily available in Scripture. In Genesis 29, verses 30 through 33, a close parallel is found in the status of Jacob's two wives, Rachel and Leah. Verse 30 states that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Verse 31 and 33 describe Leah as hated. She was hated in the sense that she came out second best in her rivalry with Rachel. So the New American Standard Bible is correct in translating the word unloved rather than hated. What Dr. Wolf is saying is that if you stay right there in those few verses, when God says that Leah was hated, he is just before that said she was loved less. And that is the meaning in that context of the word hated. 
In the New Testament, the same modified use of hate occurs in the passage about hating one's own parents or family in order to follow Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this, just quite honestly. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you hate your family? Do you hate your non-believing family? Right now, is it true of you that you hate them in the sense that we normally use the word hate, that you despise them and think evil of them and wish bad things for them? Of course not. And that's why Luke goes on to say, or rather in Matthew, this passage, it reads, it's a matter of loving God more than parents or family. Only in that sense can it be called hatred. And so if you are a Christian, you do resonate with that. You've had to take a stand for Jesus Christ in your family. And some of you, your family has even said things like, do you love God more than you love us? And the answer is yes, because you do. And that's the sense in which <clears throat> in the New Testament, you hate your family. You're in love with God. You live for God. And anything other than that is a lesser love. And so what I'm establishing here, you and I can't just say things like, oh, God doesn't hate anybody and, and you know, that's not what he means. We have to have a biblical reason for saying these things. And thankfully, we do. We have contextual reasons in the Scripture. So when God says he hated somebody or somebody was hated, it really means, or it can mean at least, that they were loved less than the other person. And so that's what we're talking about. So God didn't say that he hated the person Esau. He said that he loved less and privileged less the nation that came from him, the Edomites, because they turned against their brothers, uh, the descendants of uh, Jacob. And so that's what's going on here. And so it's my position that these verses are here all of chapter 9, as a matter of fact, and we'll see as we go on, they're here to illustrate God's integrity to the Jew in his current dealings with the nation of Israel with regard to his unconditional promises to them. This is not Paul's theology on individual salvation. If you read it that way, you're going to come to terrible and strange conclusions that I don't believe uh, can be uh, justified from other passages of Scripture. God is not faithful, excuse me, God is not unfaithful or breaking his word to the Jews. He has set them aside to call out to himself a people from all ethnic groups, Jews and Gentiles alike. Even as we say that God has set them aside, it's clear he's still dealing with Israel as a nation. Not just because we see Israel return to her homeland as predicted in the Bible, it's clear because any number of prophecies that you read. <clears throat> For example, Daniel in chapter 9 of his book receives the famous prophecy of the 70 weeks. The angel Gabriel explains to Daniel that 70 weeks are required to fulfill the petition that Daniel has made concerning the total restoration of Israel and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. The 70 weeks are interpreted as 70 weeks of years that's a period of 490 years, and it's divided, if you read Daniel 9, according to the text, as periods of seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. And so there's some information about the first 49 years, and then the next 434 years, and then the final seven years. The first two periods add up to 483 years, 
And these were consecutive, and they have already been fulfilled in human history. They start with a certain decree uh, made by Cyrus, and they end with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the rejection of Jesus Christ by the nation of Israel, a period of exactly 483 years, just what Daniel was told. What about the next seven years? Well, Jesus came to offer Israel the kingdom of heaven on earth just as scheduled, but he was rejected by their leadership. That left the 70th week of seven years unfulfilled. There's a prophetic postponement, we call it a gap, of undisclosed time between the 69th and 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. So we, we, you can tell your friends we believe in the gap theory, but not the Genesis gap theory in terms of creation. We believe in the prophetic gap theory with regards to the coming of the Lord. And so Daniel gets this fantastic, amazing revelation of the end times. Gabriel says, 490 years are, are, are uh, you know, required for your people. Uh, there's going to be, it's going to start at a certain point in history, and here's how it's going to go. And the first 483 years went consecutive, and they're fulfilled. And then they stop because Israel did the unthinkable. Instead of receiving Jesus as their Messiah and establishing the kingdom of heaven on earth, they killed him, which was already built into the prophecy, but they, you know, still they had to do it. And they did it. And so now we're waiting for that final seven years, and the time in between is where we live. We're living in a gap. The gospel is going out to the whole world. When this time period, called the church age, or in the Bible, the times of the Gentiles, when that's completed, the church is going to be resurrected and raptured to heaven. Then God will turn his attention back to national Israel for that final 70th week, seven years. We know it better as the Great Tribulation. We read all about it in Revelation chapters 13 through 19. Then God will turn his attention back to Israel for that final 70th week. Uh, as it ends, as that 70th week ends, as the great tribulation ends, all ethnic Jews on earth are saved. It says they look upon him whom they have pierced, and they receive Christ as their Savior. The Lord returns, and then he sets up the kingdom which the Jews once rejected but will receive. Uh, and that kingdom goes on for a thousand years. And so that's what's happening. This whole section of Scripture, Romans 9, 10, and 11, there's a lot of great teaching that we can glean from, uh, devotional teaching and all. But Paul is talking to Jews about Jews, and he's defending God's integrity from Scripture so that no one can say, God's word has failed. That's how this started. Remember verse 6? God, has God's word failed? Because, Paul, if what you're saying is true, then it seems like God's word has failed. Paul says, hey, I can show you from God's word that God is acting with integrity and that he already knew what he was going to do and he anticipated your question. And it's not a matter of birth it's a matter of spiritual birth. It's not a matter of birth order. It's a matter of desiring that position of being the firstborn. And, and, you know, God is reaching out to the Gentiles. Jews can still get saved, but he's not done dealing with Israel as a nation. It's just that's not the focus of the time period in which we live. For us tonight, perhaps the questions would be, am I an Ishmael or an Isaac? 
that would be on a simple level, have I been born again? Or am I depending on some natural birth? Uh, I, I know, and I've shared this with you many times before, but growing up in a Roman Catholic tradition, kind of a cultural tradition more than a really steeped church tradition, we were <coughs> surface Catholics, you know, we went through the, the rituals, baptism, uh, I'm trying to remember what our catechism, you know, you had to figure out what that was all about. So you baptism, go to catechism, first holy confession, first holy communion, confirmation, you know, but it was all ritual and symbol. But I was under, I, it, I understood to be taught by my parents and by the church that I was born into the privilege of being a saved individual because I happened to be part of the true religion. And all I had to do was a little mumbo-jumbo, uh, seriously, and, and I wasn't as good as the next guy, but I wasn't bad enough to spend eternity in hell, just a few minutes or hours or decades in purgatory, and then everything would work out. And so it was a, I was taught, and millions and maybe even billions of people throughout history have been taught that they, uh, by that religious system and others, that they are privileged by natural birth. I mean, how much better can it be than to be an Italian Catholic? <laughs> my dad from Italy, my mom from Sicily. We've got it all covered, you know? And, and so that was the idea. Uh, and so there are people, you know, you know them probably, probably, you know, I look out at the crowd here tonight. You guys uh, know most of you personally and are, you're born again. But, you know, the question, are you an Ishmael or an Isaac? Are you born naturally or are you supernaturally born? Are you born a second time, born from above? That's the real question. And then, of course, the other question, are you Esau or Jacob? That might be a, uh, one that hits closer to home because Esau, uh, he's mentioned as a person many times in Scripture. He's a man of the flesh. He uh, yields to the flesh. He's a profane person, we read in the New Testament, who uh, just goes about in his flesh. Now, Jacob wasn't the greatest guy, but uh, he walked with God. And he served God. Uh, and, and he, in a sense, our lives mirror that. We're not perfect, uh, but we're Jacob's in the sense that we are interested in, desiring of the things of the Spirit. Jacob wanted the birthright. And for all that that meant legally and personally back in the day, it, it was a, a spiritual illustration to us of wanting the birthright, wanting the inheritance that is promised the Christian all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And though we might act like Jacob from time to time, uh, we have this desire to know God and to walk with God and to live a spiritual life. And so make sure you're in the Isaac-Jacob category uh, because just like the Jew, just like it would sting for the Jew to be told, hey, you know, you're like, you're like Ishmael, you're like Esau, I certainly don't want to be in in, in the camp of those two individuals either. I want to be over where God uh, wants me to be, born again and enjoying the life of His Spirit. Amen? Amen.